my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And somebody sent me an article recently that was so bad that I just had to respond to it. And that was really the point of them sending it to me. So congratulations, you got me. This one is called 10 Ways Lord of the Rings Has Aged Poorly. And I think that I, the article would be better titled 10 Ways in Which I Failed to Read Lord of the Rings Very Well. Uh, and it's also really more of a five-item list than a ten-item list, but we'll get into that as we go along. So, basically, this is ways in which this person thinks that the Lord of the Rings didn't age well, and all of them are wrong, and all of them are kind of stupid. <laughs> so, let's just get started and see what's wrong with this, shall we? First, Tolkien's writing features plot cul-de-sacs for the sake of world-building, Tolkien's Middle-earth is one of the most meticulously crafted fantasy settings in existence. Apart from The Lord of the Rings, he details the history of Middle-earth in The Silmarillion and had tons of personal notes on the world. While this makes for an incredibly rich setting, it occasionally resulted in clunky storytelling. When the main four hobbits take an unplanned detour through the old forest and meet the strange Tom Bombadil, readers are treated to many pages about a character who will soon disappear from the plot. While this establishes more about the world of Middle-earth, Modern audiences are used to very streamlined stories and expect every chapter of a book to advance the main plot. Is that true? I mean, I think that's true of movies. I'm not so sure that that's true of books, where by definition you have more time to spend on things. I mean, maybe modern audiences do tend to expect that, but I'm pretty sure audiences who expect that out of books existed back then too. Tom Bombadil has always had his detractors for this very reason. So to say that this is a thing that makes the story age poorly is off on the wrong footing already because Tom Bombadil has always had people who didn't particularly like him because he just represents a detour in the plot, so to speak. But it's not even true that he's just a plot cul-de-sac. Tom Bombadil is the one in the book who gives the hobbits the four daggers one of which Mary will eventually use to stab Mary, uh, the Witch King in the back of the knee. So it's not like this has zero impact on the f further plot of the book. And Bombadil gets mentioned again in the Council of Elrond, too, because they discuss whether or not they could give the ring to Tom Bombadil. So, so many things wrong with this, because he's not a plot cul-de-sac. He does get mentioned again, and it's not a way in which the story has aged poorly. I would also argue that Tom Bombadil, contrary to what this guy says, where it tells us more about the world, it actually doesn't tell us more about the world. What it does is introduce an aspect of mystery to the world, which is designed to get us thinking in bigger, broader terms of what Tolkien would call a fairy story. There's this idea that the world is much bigger and much more you know, mystical than what we might be ready to accept, and Tom Bombadil really starts to introduce us to this idea in this whole adventure, because we have the old man Willow, we have Tom Bombadil, we have the Barrow Whites, and we get this vast sweep of history brought up kind of in Tom Bombadil's talking to the hobbits. The purpose of Bombadil is not to flesh out the world, but to make us just ask questions about the world, because there are just things in it we can't know everything about. And to me, that serves the purpose that it is really useful to serve, which is it puts us in a fairy story setting. And up to this point, we haven't really been in a fairy story setting in the traditional sense. 
Fantasy, yes, maybe, because there are fantastic elements, magic rings and all that stuff. But Tom Bombadil lands us squarely in the idea of fairy story, I think. And that's really the first time it happens in the story, and therefore he serves a rather important purpose. Number nine, random characters show up for a short amount of time in The Lord of the Rings. Now you're already getting an idea of why this is only a five-item list, because this is effectively just a repeat of the previous point. He tries to make it a little bit different, but I don't think it really succeeds. The Silmarillion and some of Tolkien's other writings, which were compiled into the history of Middle-earth, cover a lot of world, the world's history. Some characters from these writings, notably the elf Glorfindel, make small appearances in the, in the Lord of the Rings, but don't influence the plot too much before leaving. Tolkien fans love these cameos, but many modern readers are left frustrated by them. Readers of contemporary fantasy, like A Song of Ice and Fire, are used, are used to characters sticking around and making surprising contributions to the overall plot. Though this element of Tolkien's writing may have aged poorly in novel form, having cameos from random characters does seem to be taking off in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What a dumb comparison to begin with. Cameos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has nothing to do with anything related to Tolkien, because first of all, Glorfindel wasn't a cameo for anybody except Tolkien, and maybe a handful of people who had been read portions of what would later become the Silmarillion, because literally at the time of the publication of The Lord of the Rings, maybe about five to ten people knew anything about the Silmarillion. So this idea that Glorfindel is a cameo is the stupidest thing ever. Also, how many people do you know have read The Silmarillion before reading The Lord of the Rings so that they would know in advance who Glorfindel was? I mean, that just, that almost never happens. There are a few people out there, I think, who have managed it somehow, but by and large, people come to The Silmarillion through The Lord of the Rings, not the other way around. Also, Glorfindel does have some impact on the plot. I mean, he saves Frodo and the other hobbits and Strider by coming along and making things a little bit easier on him. Also, we end up learning that he is the one who made the prophecy about the Witch King not dying by the hand of man, although you have to read the appendices to get that. But it's like, you know, you, that's why this story is the way that it is. Tolkien has a vast black cloth of, a vast back cloth of history that you can look at and you've got to have characters in there who just aren't going to be there throughout the whole thing. You can't do that. And then the other the other part of this that I find really silly is that he says that in the Song of Ice and Fire we have characters who are, you know, they just stick around forever and make surprising impact on the plot. Okay, Ned Stark dies really early on? Like, <laughs> I mean, just... There are no characters in A Song of Ice and Fire who don't leave the story at some point and just never come back. Really? None? I find that hard to believe. Come on, guys. Number eight. Tolkien's heroes seem invincible. The Lord of the Rings largely centers on a war, and they are written by a war veteran. Considering these facts, it's strange that none of the main characters die. Mm. Fans of the film adaptations might argue Boromir, but in the books, he was a very shallow character simply meant to show audiences the effect of the ring. I'm about to have a cow here, guys. Of course, a character doesn't have to die to be affected by war. Tolkien himself knew that very well. However, modern audiences have the perception that characters dying and other dark elements make a world of fiction more realistic. Some readers may feel that a story where all the main heroes survive is outdated based on what they would have come to expect from newer books. 
Like A Song of Ice and Fire, where all the characters live and have major impacts on the plot? I mean, like, he contradicts himself from point to point now. It's just ridiculous. Also, Boromir is a shallow character in the books. He's more fleshed out in the books than he is in the movie. Now, granted, Peter Jackson did a really good job of fleshing out Boromir's character in a relatively short space of time, but there's a lot of stuff in the books that fleshes character out, too. It's not like he's just there and he's just a foil for the, you know, for Frodo who falls victim to the ring and then does whatever. I mean, it's not that simple. A lot of people may think it is because they're reading at a very surface level, but if you really pay attention to everything that happens in the book with Boromir, there's a good bit there, and we learn more about him later after he's dead through people like Faramir, Denethor, and even Gandalf. So it's not like Boromir is just this really shallow character. So that's just stupid. Also, none of the main characters die. I guess main characters includes exactly nine people, the members of the Fellowship. Keep that in mind because that'll come up again. But you have to exclude other people like Theoden, for instance. Theoden dies. Theoden's a pretty major character. If you want to say he's not a main character, we could argue about that, I guess. Um, But... I wouldn't call him a minor character either. I think if you're going to categorize him, you'd have to put him at least somewhere in between minor and main. He is clearly a major character. We spend a lot of time with him. So this idea that the main characters seem invincible is just stupid. Also, Gandalf dies. Legitimately, he dies. Now he comes back to life, okay, but he's not invincible. He does die. And even after he comes back to life and Denethor says, you might have met your match in the Witch King. And he says, maybe. Clearly implying that he could die again. So it's not that he seems invincible. Also, Frodo dies, or almost dies rather, two or three times. Shelob getting stabbed by the spear in the mines of Moria and almost getting killed by the Witch King at Weathertop by being turned into a wraith. So it's not like they seem invincible. Now, Aragorn seems invincible, but there's a reason for that. Aragorn is supposed to seem way more and above everybody else. That is kind of the point of his character, because the story is written from the point of view of the hobbits. The hobbits do not seem invincible by any stretch of the imagination. The other characters kind of do in some ways, except, like I mentioned, Gandalf dies, Boromir dies, Theoden dies, Denethor dies. I mean... Faramir almost dies. Good gravy. I mean, there's just people dying left and right if you actually pay attention. And But, of course, you'd have to say that they don't count because they're not main characters. But up to the point of Boromir dying, are any of the Hobbits main characters? Because they say that Boromir's character is shallow. Well, Merry and Pippin don't have a whole lot of characterization. Especially Pippin. He's just the goofball that's kind of comic, rel- comic relief for most of it. And what about Legolas and Gimli? They have less character than anybody in the entire book, probably. In fact, they're probably less developed than Theoden is. So, the the rationalization you have to engage in to make this plot point work is just insane. And he's going to contradict it later on, so keep, like I said, keep it in mind. 7. Some of the Lord of the Rings' main characters lack agency. Contemporary readers like their principal characters to have agency in their story, and characters who don't are often maligned. A good example might be Twilight's Bella Swan, who many readers dislike due to her passive role in the narrative. In The Two Towers, Merry and Pippin are largely passive characters. They begin the book captured by a pack of orcs and stay that way until the Rohirrim kill the orcs and allow Merry and Pippin to escape with little effort. 
Later, they become passive observers of the Ents' destruction of Isengard. Even the team behind the two towers filled in adaptation thought the modern, that modern audiences would be unhappy with this depiction of the Hobbits and updated their story to make them a bit more involved. Okay, so like I said before, Merry and Pippin are not very well-developed characters up to this point, um, and so the idea that Boromir's main character, but Merry and Pippin are, is kind of a problem. Also, this idea that Merry and Pippin have little agency... Okay, Merry has relatively little agency, but he's also knocked unconscious by the orcs and doesn't wake up for a good long while, and therefore is not able to do anything. That doesn't mean he has no agency. Pippin, on the other hand, actually does quite a bit. He manages to find an opportunity to cut his ropes, retie them in a loose knot, and then eventually run off also and escape from the orcs long enough to throw down his uh, brooch so that Aragorn can find it. That's not agency? I mean, sure, the brooch doesn't help him escape later, but he does untie his own ropes and make it so that he can untie them again later, which is how Merry and he escape, not because the Rohirrim attack. Now, Rohirrim, they give him the opportunity to escape, but if he hadn't untied his hands earlier and made it so that he could untie Merry in his own legs, they still wouldn't have made it out of there. I mean, this idea that the Rohirrim attack, and that just makes it easy for him. No, Pippin had to set that up. Also, they meet Treebeard and tell him all this stuff, and that kind of sets off the Ents attacking Isengard. Now, do Merry and Pippin do a whole lot in the process of the attack on Isengard? No, but they're two little hobbits against a relatively significant force of orcs, we have to assume, was left at Isengard because there is some combat there, we are told. And then, what do you expect them to do in that? I mean, like, and doing it the way that Peter Jackson does it, I think, is just silly, because now we have to assume that Treebeard knew nothing about all these trees getting cut down, and Pippin somehow knew about it, and therefore he led him over there. It's like, it just creates a plot hole in the Peter Jackson film, which I find silly. And he's acting like, this solves the problem. It's like, no. Also, you have to look only at the two towers to get this idea, because Merry and Pippin will later go on and do more stuff. Pippin will save Faramir, Merry will save Eowyn. Things will happen because these characters do things in their own stories. But no, we're just going to narrow our focus to the two towers so I can artificially create a point for a piece of you know, journalism on the frickin' internet. This is the stupidest thing ever. Six, the story takes a while to get started. A lot of modern media, books included, are very concerned with hooking audiences as quickly as possible. In an oversaturated landscape of fiction, it makes sense that books need to do everything they can to prevent readers from putting them down and moving on to the next one. Because the Lord of the Rings books were published in a very different setting, they do not have the same sense of urgency. For audiences who are used to fantasy stories that start during or an exciting action scene or else at the book's, at the book's climax before flashing back, the Fellowship of the Rings opening will feel will likely feel quaint and outdated. Were it to be published today, readers might not make it through the somewhat dry explanation of what a hobbit is before deciding they'd rather read a Brandon Sanderson book that starts with a magic-fueled assassination instead. First of all, how many people actually read the prologue before reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time? I'd be surprised if it was a majority. Second, lots of people still find The Lord of the Rings quite fun to read, and therefore, like... This idea that it's aged poorly, people are reading it. They're still reading it, and they're still enjoying it. I mean, 
but the other problem here is why is this an age problem? Again, this goes back to what I said earlier. Like Tom Bombadil has already has always had his detractors. So has the start of the Lord of the Rings. That's not. <laughs> also, I should mention the prologue really isn't even something that you should read before because it actually kind of spoils some of the ending. It really makes more sense to read the prologue after. But that aside, this has always been a complaint about the Lord of the Rings, is that it's slow to get going. That's not a way in which it's aged poorly. It's just some people like this kind of story. Some people don't. It's just, again, somebody tasked this guy with, find ten ways in which the story aged poorly and make an article about it. And he very desperately came up with something that has no relation to anything about whether it's aged poorly or whether it's anything like what the story actually is or, you know, he read a Cliff's Notes version and came up with five things that he thought he could figure out and that's about it. All right, so the last five points are all kind of the same point and, well, we get started pretty heavy with it right here. Five, the Lord of the Rings books lack diversity. You knew it had to happen. Because Tolkien was largely inspired by white European history and myths, The Lord of the Rings is not a very diverse series of books. The main cast of characters is all presumed to be white based on the books, and even adaptations of the work reflect this lack of diversity. Representation in media matters, as some studies have suggested that positive representation can lead to greater acceptance of people who are othered. Having a series of books featuring all white lead characters is a notion that feels dated with today's sensibilities. First of all, I don't think there is anything anywhere in any of the stories to suggest what color-skinned dwarves actually have. So the fact that you say that all their skin colors are presumed to be white based on the books is actually kind of a lie. Uh, but also, why is this a way in which it's aged poorly? Like, that's a way in which modern audiences may expect different things out of their media, but frankly, I think we've seen over the last several years, that storytelling that first and foremost tries to check off the diversity boxes ends up being poorer storytelling because you're not focused on how do I tell a good story, you're focused on how do I make it diverse. And then that just does not work. It's not a good way to write a good story. It just isn't. I'm sorry. You can try it all you like, but it's just its not ever going to produce the results that something like this is. The Lord of the Rings is a great story because, first and foremost, Tolkien was trying to write a good story. And he wasn't thinking about all these other things about how to be politically correct, which wasn't even really a thing when he was writing it. Thank goodness, because it probably wouldn't have been as good a story otherwise. But it's not like the whole idea of having just a single group of people is a problem. I mean, look at movies that have been released just in the recent past. We just had a movie released called The Woman King, which is all about black characters. And that's just one set, okay? Are there others that you could point to? Hmm. I mean, like, all the Batman movies had really just... I'm referring here to Christopher Nolan's, pretty much all just white characters. Did it work fine as good storytelling? Yeah. Those aren't that old. I mean, it is not necessary for a story to have a diverse cast in order to be good entertainment. 
is it important for some people in those other communities to have stories in which their own race or whatever features prominently? Okay, maybe. I'm not denying that, but does that mean every story has to do that? I don't think that's the case. So to say that the Lord of the Rings has aged poorly on these grounds, to me, is just silly. Four, some races in the Lord of the Rings are inherently evil. In the Lord of the Rings, there are certain races that are only represented by evil characters. The orcs, uruks, and goblins, for instance, only appear in the form of evil antagonists, leading readers to believe that all members of these races are evil. Tolkien said, nothing is evil in the beginning, which is a good sentiment. However, when every character from a race is shown to be evil, it does make readers think that every member of that race must be evil. Even if the races depicted are fantasy races, the idea that a group of people is all born with the same immutable qualities is outdated and, frankly, problematic. Okay, again, somebody hasn't read the actual text here, because if you read The Lord of the Rings, there are a few things that should pop out at you if you're paying attention to this specific issue. One... When Faramir encounters Frodo and Sam and has a battle that Frodo and Sam get to watch unfold, one of the, uh, I forget if it's Haradrim or Easterlings, uh, ends up falling dead pretty near to Sam, and Sam has this thought process of, was this person really evil, or were they forced by lies and threats to come out here far from their family? So we're already getting this idea of, you know, the people over on the other side are not necessarily evil. Now, that's not an orc, fair enough. But then, guess what we find out later about orcs? When Sam is trying to rescue Frodo in the Tower of Kirith Ungol, he overhears a conversation between a couple of orcs, and they're talking about how when the war is over, they're just going to go set up somewhere in the Misty Mountains with some trusty lads and do their own thing. Which makes you think that there's a little bit more to orcs than just bloodthirsty, rapacious you know, desire to murder the good guys, right? And then, when Sauron is defeated, all the orcs and everybody who was fighting against the people of the West drop their weapons and just they just stop. It's like they lost whatever was controlling them. And that's very important, because it shows that Sauron was in fact controlling them in some way. Sauron's will was imposed on theirs, and therefore... Can we really attribute everything they do to, you know, their own choices? One wonders what would happen with orcs if, in fact, they weren't constantly being coerced into doing things. Now, is every orc we ever encounter a bad guy? Yep, sure is. But that doesn't really prove what this person thinks it proves. And to the extent that it would make you think that, maybe, as a reader... I would call that a hasty conclusion. Now, Tolkien did, of course, wrestle with this topic and never got around to completely resolving it because he recognized that there are problems with the idea of orcs being an irredeemable evil race, and he wanted to figure out how he could make that either work or not be that way in his stories going forward because he didn't like the idea. Originally, orcs were kind of robots. I mean, they were just creatures of mud and slime, and so they weren't really independent living creatures in any real sense. And as he developed the stories, it got to be more problematic, because it's like, they can't all be purely evil and irredeemable if they're also, you know, real sentient beings with minds and wills of their own, so how do I reconcile this? And I don't think he ever finally reconciled that particular problem, 
or if he did, I don't think I read anything to show how he did it, but he was clearly thinking about it. So, but the other point here is you still have stories like, for instance, A Song of Ice and Fire, where you have the, uh, what is it, White Walkers, I think they're called, and they're just bad. Like, this is a fantasy trope, people. (laughs) It just is. There is a fantasy trope of there being a group of people who's just evil. And sometimes in fairy tales, it's not even just that they're evil, it's that fairy tales are just, I mean, fairies are just dangerous. They don't have souls, they're not like humans, they're something different and they're dangerous and you just got to stay away from them. It's an old trope going back forever and modern audiences don't actually have a problem with this if it's done well and done right. Now, there are other stories that have come out like, say, the, which one was it? I forget, not Dungeons and Dragons, it was the, was there a Warhammer movie? I forget, it's been a while, where orcs are you know, like just their own race, and there's enemy, they're enemies of humans, but they're not just inherently evil. So you've got stories that are trying to kind of push back on that, but those aren't necessary, and the kind of story that Lord of the Rings is is still fine for most people. It's just that this guy who has to meet his diversity quota and everything else, this guy thinks it's problematic because uh, he doesn't really even explain why. So I'm just not even going to try to do it for him. Three, the geography of Middle-earth is concerning. Some some critics of Tolkien's work have pointed out some potentially concerning connections between where certain groups live in Middle-earth and real-life biases. Geographically, there is a largely east-versus-west dynamic in the books, which is even directly referenced in the text. In the books, the good characters are from the west, and the bad characters are from the east. Tolkien addressed this criticism, saying it arose simply due to the narrative he was telling, but it does parallel some concerning talking points. The idea of protecting Western civilization has been used by some bad actors in support of white nationalism and xenophobia. More politically active readers of The Lord of the Rings will likely see some red flags in this similarity. The only red flag I see here is in your own political biases, pal, because it's clear which side of the political aisle you're on, and I guarantee you that If somebody were to say that we want to protect Western civilization and culture, meaning the arts and the history and the things that have been produced by Western Europeans over the course of centuries, you would probably still categorize that as a white nationalist thing to say, even though there's nothing white nationalist about wanting to just preserve the culture that a lot of people still value. So this idea that there just happens to be a West-East thing in The Lord of the Rings... This guy already mentioned the Silmarillion. Has he read it? Because in there, the story isn't about West-East, it's about North-South. So, okay, what does that prove? It's like, you've got to pick a direction, man. The good guys are going to be on one side of a line, and the bad guys are going to be on the other side of the line. That's how wars work. You have people coming from different directions, and they meet in a middle. The middle defines what direction. That's just That's just the way it works. You can't avoid that. So the fact that he picked West-East makes it bad because it just so happens that some people who are white nationalists talk about West versus East? Give me a break. I mean, that's just... This is literally like third-grade level thinking. That's how bad this is. Again, I challenge you to find any war where there's not some kind of line drawn along a geographical line somewhere. Just, Just find one. 
Even civil wars are usually fought along some kind of geographical dimension. In the United States, the civil war was between the North and the South. In England, there was civil wars too, and they were probably also fought more or less in the same way because one set of families would side on one side and another set of families would side on the other side. It's like if you have a pockmarked checkerboard of families, that just leads to total chaos, and that's why people tend to side with who they side with because it's a whole heck of a lot easier to side with a side that you're already literally on the physical side of than otherwise. I mean, this is just stupid. Two. Tolkien's work features uncomfortable racial terminology. Like I said, these last five points are all really just the same. While possibly not intentional on Tolkien's part, there are certain words he chooses to use that in a modern context raise a few eyebrows. While Tolkien himself professed to be anti-racist and there is strong evidence to support he meant this, some of his terminologies were ill-thought out and have aged poorly. A clear example of this comes in chapter 10, of the Fellowship of the Ring when Aragorn is discussing the Nazgul with Barlam and Butterbur. Yeah, you didn't think that was going to come up in this, did you? The innkeeper says that no black man shall pass my doors while I can stand on my legs and also refers to the Nazgul as using a slur. These lines have aged very poorly and are likely to detract from the intended message of love and cooperation in the books. Oh. Man, when I talk about stupid, this this is probably the stupidest point of the whole thing. Barlaman Butterbur is talking about the Nazgul and calling them black men. And this is a phrase that gets used several times by different people. Why are they called black men? Well, it ain't because the color of their skin, because they're literally invisible. Okay? It's <laughs> this is just pathetic. And it says that he uses a slur. And I had to really figure out what he was talking about here and I I think I know what he's talking about because I knew hands off just what had to be the term he was referring to because Barlaman Butterbur says spooks or no spooks they won't get into my I don't remember exactly the full line but he calls them spooks and I'm like that's the only term that I can think of that could even possibly be a slur because everything else is just normal language. But of course, when he says spooks, he's talking about ghosts, right? I mean, everybody knows that, right? Literally everybody knows that, right? I mean, here we are, you know, just after Halloween when this is getting published. Well, not just after Halloween, but, you know, close enough. I'm recording it the day before Halloween, if anybody's interested. And anytime I hear the word spook, that's the first thing I think of. Or, in some contexts, I think of CIA operatives. Well, it turns out that the word actually has been used as a racial slur. And I had to look that up to even find that out, okay? So, this guy apparently just thinks too hard about these topics and cares way too much about it that he would even know it. But it's like, really? Nobody reading this story would jump to that conclusion. Everybody calls the Nazgul black men because they're wearing black robes. They can't see their skin, and we know that they're invisible, and that's why. But we also know that they're all just assuming that they can't see it because they're just covered up too much in their hoods and cloaks. None of them know what they actually look like. And so they're all just referring to them by the only thing that they have as a descriptor. The big black cloaks that they're wearing that cover literally every part of them. And the fact that they're spooks is a reference to the fact that they're undead. <laughs> that's really all that is. 
<laughs> so this idea that this is a racial thing, and this is what he reaches for. That, I mean, there were easier apples for him to reach for on that tree. There were some really low-hanging fruit that he could have gone for, and this is what he went with. I'm just, uh, this guy's got to be the laziest researcher on their staff or something. I don't know. It's just bad. Number one, and you knew this one had to be coming because we hadn't got to it yet, Tolkien's world features very few women. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings is largely a story about male characters. <laughs> the female characters in Tolkien's work are largely sidelined or defined by their relationships to men in the story. Celeborn is going to tell you to hold his beer. By today's standards, this type of storytelling doesn't really hold up. Hmm. Similar to ensuring there is good representation across races, it is also important for media to portray characters of multiple genders. Though Tolkien does include some good moments for his female characters, notably Eowyn slaying the Witch King, they do not feel like fully realized people. Wow. Okay. They don't feel like fully realized people. Uh, bear in mind, this guy had already mentioned the fact that this is largely a story about a war by a guy who had experienced war, and that guy who had experienced war experienced it in the context of, men are the only people doing the fighting. Eowyn is an exception, and an exception based on, you know, real historical things that happened, because there were women who fought in wars, but Tolkien specifically makes her an exception. But to say that there are very few women is like, okay, and there's very few men in Pride and Prejudice. There's actually very few women in, let's say, Top Gun Maverick. There's very few... I mean, pick a dang movie, guys. You can find almost any kind of modern story where a similar thing happens and people just don't bat an eye. So the fact that you're saying this is an aspect of the story that aged poorly is really you just complaining about your diversity of politics. That's all that is. It's not about what audiences want. Audiences don't want a story based on a diversity checklist. Sorry, they just don't. They just want a good story. If it happens to meet the diversity checklist, maybe good, maybe bad. Meh, I'm not making an argument one way or the other. But the point is, that's not why people go to read or watch stories. They do it because they want a good story. And if the characters in the story serve the story well, good. If they don't, not good. That's just the way it works. This idea also, like I mentioned about Kelborn, <laughs> that the women are all defined by their relationships to, to the men. <laughs> Galadriel is like literally the last person you would ever put in that category as a woman. If anything, Kelborn is defined as kind of like Galadriel's plus one in this story because he has very little role and I'm sorry for Celeborn because he constantly gets joked about by everybody who knows anything about Tolkien but that doesn't make any sense to say that and Galadriel is one of the most powerful people in Middle-earth at this point so this whole idea is just silly on its own terms and just flies in the face of what the text gives us so Again, I mean, like, these last five points have all really been just about the diversity checklist, and so they're all really one point, and then you had the two points earlier about Bombadil and Glorfindel that were really the same point, so it's only a five-point list. The guy clearly hasn't actually read The Lord of the Rings with any kind of carefulness at all, and is just, uh, he's just trying to make some kind of a list 
to meet some kind of a deadline probably and couldn't come up with anything and so he had to do this piece of junk. And I'm not even going to link to the article because I literally read you the whole thing. Uh, you can go find it. I gave you the title if you want to Google it, but you know, that's your business. At any rate, one more article debunked in uh, a relatively you know short train of articles debunked on this channel, but hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, at least got a chuckle out of some of the absolute stupidity that came out of this because there's really nothing else to get out of it other than maybe laugh at it. But anyway, if you did enjoy it, please give it a like, share it around for anybody else who might want a nice chuckle, I guess. You know, maybe avoid it if anybody's at risk for a brain aneurysm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you can find me on the usual other channel, other platforms. I've got podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at JRRT Lore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And you can support me on Patreon or Utreon or through YouTube memberships. Until the next time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Ole Gregg.